Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon. Named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by the banker. That's the power of global connections. Bank of America North America. Member FDIC. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I sit down with Professor Arun Sundarajan of NYU Stern's School of Business. The professor is a technologist and an economist and studies what we have come to call the sharing economy. He likes to call it crowdsourcing capitalism. And we look at a whole bunch of different companies and platforms and technologies that are changing the way people interact with each other. If you've ever used Uber for a ride, if you've bought or sold something on eBay or Craigslist or or Etsy, if you've stayed at an Airbnb, there are hundreds and hundreds of different companies, platforms, etc., that allow people to either monetize their unused real estate, hardware, automobiles, whatever, or other people to only purchase a fractional usage of it. Uh, the professor is, is certainly well known amongst technology circles. You might not have heard of him. If you go on YouTube and look at any of his presentations, they're quite fascinating and they're always filled with these amazing tidbits. I don't want to spoil anything from the actual podcast, but I have to just share this one little data point with you. In the United States, there are approximately 80 million electric drills. I have one. Actually, I have two. The second one uh, is out at the vacation house. And the data point on those drills is quite amazing. The average usage over the lifespan of that drill is a mere 13 minutes. Now, stop and think about it. A decent drill you're paying $100 or $200 for, and essentially you're barely using it. So a platform that allows people to rent or or loan or what have you drills has a certain appeal because it you're taking something that actually has a value and a cost and you're recapturing some of that cost. On the other hand, if you only need a drill for five minutes, why do you want to spend $200? That is the essence of the sharing economy, whether it be a spare room or a ride in someone's car or rent the runway, a, a, any sort of couture dress that you don't want to spend $5,000 on to wear just once. Uh, the professor not only thinks this is the future of retail, but he thinks it's going to have a very beneficial impact on people in the bottom half of the uh, economic strata in terms of income. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Arun Sundarajan. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Arun Sundarajan. 
He is a professor at NYU Stern School of Business and is fascinated by how digital technology shapes the economy and transforms our lives. His scholarly research analyzes what makes the economics of technology products and industries so unique. He is a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Council on Technology, Value, and Policy, and he advises governments around the world on digital regulation. He is also the author of a new book called The Sharing Economy, The End of Employment and the Rise of Crowd-Based Capitalism. Aaron Sundarajan, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. I'm delighted to be on your show. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to have you. I enjoyed the book very much, and it raised a whole lot of questions. Let's jump right into this from a broad perspective. What exactly is the sharing economy? Well, that's a great question to start with, because that's the question that I hope to answer in the book. Um, the label sharing economy can often be distracting because it conjures up an image of something that it's not, which is why I prefer the term crowd-based capitalism. But in the battle between what should we call the book between me and my publisher, Sharing Economy, one over crowd-based capitalism. Um, so I think of it as a new way of organizing economic activity, where we are taking out a lot of what used to happen within an organization and decentralizing it to a distributed crowd of providers. So Airbnb hosts who are running their small short-term accommodation businesses through the platforms, Uber drivers who are driving through the platform, get around renters who are running tiny car rental businesses, Etsy sellers, funding circle lenders. And I expect that this model will sit aside the traditional industrial capitalism model in the 21st century as one of the dominant ways in which we organize economic activity. So what you're describing sounds very much like what used to be called peer-to-peer -peer or many-to-many yes. -many, as opposed to a centralized distribution where one company manufactures it, they ship it, it goes to their stores, and then consumers come and buy it. That model seems to be challenged by, let's call it crowd-based uh, capitalism. Yes, I think that peer-to-peer -peer is certainly a precursor. You might think of the 18th century economy as being almost entirely peer-to-peer. The Adam Smith market economy, where individuals or small businesses sold to other individuals. And then we saw a resurgence of some of that kind of activity in the late 90s with eBay and with Craigslist. Mm -hmm. But what's different about the sharing economy and crowd-based capitalism is two things. One is that it scales this kind of activity to the point where the crowd-based alternative can be the largest provider in the industry. Mm -hmm. Airbnb is already the largest provider of short term accommodation in the world. They have three times as many listings as Marriott Star would have rooms. If I recall mm. hearing one of your presentations once, you mentioned last night 150,000 people stayed at an Airbnb. Is that number still accurate? Well, that was uh, probably a couple of years ago. Um, That's amazing. That really is, right? I mean, they own no assets. This is entirely other individuals running their businesses through the platform. So the ramifications of this are, are going to be significant. And you've, you've discussed the blurred lines between personal and professional between casual labor and someone who's working full-time for someone else. So how does this new change affect everything? What is the ramifications of the way these digital technologies are going to impact 
our lives. Um, see, the blurring of lines between personal and professional, I think, is central to a lot of the challenges that the sharing economy has faced in the last decade. Because if you think about it, there are lots of activities that fall under the personal umbrella naturally. If you own a car, you've probably picked someone up from the airport. Sure. You've probably cooked a meal for someone at your and had them eat it at your home. You've had house guests. You may have picked your friend's kids up from soccer practice. You may have lent money to a friend. You didn't need any special permit for this. This was all under the personal umbrella. And then you had taxi drivers, you had professional bankers, you had restaurant owners, you had bed and breakfast owners who were on the professional side and for whom all of the regulations were developed. And so we're now entering an economy where these lines between personal and professional are blurring. And so the regulatory structures that we have developed to regulate, say, accommodation or transportation, which expect a full-time professional provider on the supply side, are being challenged because you've got people who are hosting occasionally on Airbnb, mm -hmm. who are driving occasionally for Lyft, who have become little car rental businesses, who have become little bankers. Here in New York City, there's been a number of complaints from condos and co-ops yes. about buildings originally not made for taking guests and, and suddenly you think you own a private co-op in a apartment building and you discover there's random strangers in your building. How does an Airbnb deal with that? How does the city of New York deal with that? Well, um, dealing with the new world of short-term accommodation, I think, requires a fundamental rethinking of a lot of different dimensions of regulation, because we are creating, in some sense, a new form of mixed-use real estate, where the personal home can also become a commercial short-term accommodation source mm -hmm. for people who are visiting the city. We're challenging ideas of zoning. And we're challenging sort of the separation between long-term and short-term accommodation. It's really a situation where we have to think about how do we change the laws in a way that accommodates this activity, because a lot of people want to host on Airbnb. A lot of guests want Airbnb. So society wants this service. What I think will happen in the long run is a couple of things. One is that we will, in fact, change the laws around that prevent people from renting for less than 30 days and so on. But I think we're also going to delegate a lot of the responsibility to parties other than the government. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Arun Sundarajan. He is a professor at NYU Stern School of Business and is an expert in digital technologies and sharing economy. So there are sort of three levels of, of sharing economies when it comes to accommodations. On the high end, you have one fine stay, yes, which is a way for people with lovely high-end homes or other properties to generate a little income with them. You have Airbnb, which is pretty middle of the road. It's a way that anybody can rent out a room or an apartment or what have you. And then I kind of like couchsurfing.com, whose business model, essentially, hey, we have a couch for you to crash on, and no money exchanges hands, 
What is that business model? How does that company that has venture investors, yes. how do they make money? Well, their revenue sources, the revenue sources that Couchsurfing have are pretty limited. Mm-hmm. Um, they have been making money for a while by charging people for a verification service, where if you want to stay with people who have been verified, then Couchsurfing gets a fee. Uh-huh. Um, they switched recently from disavowing advertising to adopting an advertising business model. This sure. is in the Google tradition of like, you know, sort of going from anti-advertising to pro-advertising. Um, but, you know, I think uh, focusing on the revenue model of couch surfing um, takes us away from what's fundamentally different about them. They haven't been set up as a commercial business. They are a pure gift economy. So Most, it's really more of a social network than anything else? Really, yeah. I mean, the typical couch surfing user, when they go to a new city, they're not saying where do I find accommodation? They're saying, you know, where's the party? Or like, right. you know, how do I meet the interesting people? And the exchange of accommodation is sort of the gift that cements the connection. Ma- makes a lot of sense. And and there are some people who only seem to host others. Yep. And there are other people who are traveling around the country only couch surfing. Absolutely. And Airbnb in some ways represents a middle ground between the commercial and the gift. In that sense, I mean, it's decidedly commercial. You are pricing, you are managing inventory if you're a supplier. As a guest, you are paying for something that is a service that you're getting from the host. But there is also some gift element and some sort of embracing of imperfection Mm-hmm. that the guest experiences where you don't expect all the towels will be the same color and perfectly right. folded. Um, there's a connection that forms with the host. Even if the host is not there, you get to see how they have made up their home. There's an intimacy associated sure. with staying it's, in someone else's home. It's like a bed and breakfast. And I, I was amused. I learned in your book that the name Airbnb came out from the idea of an air mattress yep. as as a place for people to to crash, let, let's shift away from accommodation and talk a little bit about travel. So Uber has been a huge success globally. Lyft also has experienced a tremendous amount of growth. Absolutely. Um, so here's the question. How much of this is a function of the entrenched industry's complacency? And let's be honest, at least as a New Yorker, who, who here doesn't hate taxis? There aren't enough of them. As soon as it starts to rain, you can't get one. And heaven forbid, if you want one during rush hours, some idiot has decided that's when we're going to do the shift change and there's no taxis available. So would Uber have been this successful if you didn't have a complacent, dominant, entrenched business? Um, I certainly think that the complacency of the entrenched businesses opened the door for Uber and Lyft because the bar was pretty low and it was easy to create a product, a service that was dramatically superior. You know, I've lived in New York for a long time and I've had the same frustrations with yellow cabs. But if you think about the United States, New York has by far the best taxi service in the country. Really? And so that's... That's horrible. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Las, Las Vegas maybe comes close, but... But that's pretty much it. I mean, I used to go to LA and I wouldn't know how to get around 
without renting a car and then I'd be driving on the highway right. at 60 miles an hour having not driven for three months. So, you know, that's how the door was open, but that's not going to determine the long run success of the companies because they're not really going after the taxi industry. They're going after the automobile industry. Mm-hmm. They want to shift our spending on buying new and used cars towards getting transportation on demand as a service. So they're not going after the $11 billion we spend on taxi every year. They're going after the $1.2 trillion we spend on buying new and used cars. So, so let's talk about that for a moment. You discussed the importance of idle capacity and shareability. Yep. So, and it's not just cars. Let me throw a statistic out. And again, this is from an earlier presentation of yours. There are 80 million power drills in the United States. Each drill is used over the course of its total lifetime, a grand total of 13 minutes. Yes. That seems like an enormous waste of, of idle capacity. Absolutely. And I think that the sharing economy sort of came to be because we decided that there must be ways of tapping into capacity that is underutilized. And once we got the smartphones, we were equipped with the technology that allowed us in some ways to think about re-engineering our consumption in the same ways that the company sort of re-engineered their businesses 20 years ago when they got the PCs and the inter- and the ethernet. Um, But, and if you think about the two industries we're talking about, accommodation and transportation, um, part of the reason why they're so visible is that they reflect the two most valuable personal assets that the average individual has, their home and their car. And so we've managed to create sharing markets for these assets, even though the transaction costs are still pretty high. Mm -hmm. It's been harder to create markets for power drill rental or for vacuum cleaner rental or for, you know, tent rental, all of these underutilized assets. What what about some of the... um the high-end uh, designer clothing. I know there's uh, a, a number of companies that rent high-end dresses, and uh, I forgot some of the names of... Uh, Absolutely. There's Rent the Runway. Rent that the does Runway. This. It, it does this on-demand as a business. There's another one called StyleLend that I really like that does this peer-to-peer, where you can sort of monetize your wardrobe by renting things out. Um, the logistics are still sort of the economics, the unit economics of the logistics are still being worked out on that front. Um, but I think that things are going to get a lot easier once drone technologies take off mm-hmm. and we have the ability to sort of tap into, you know, if an object knows how much it's being used, where it is, mm-hmm. and can call on transport on demand, which will be possible in about a decade, um, you know, with drone technology. Not that then, far off in the future. Not at all. Then we have the specter of not just sort of drones flying above, but carrying power drills. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Arun Sundarajan. He is a professor at NYU Stern's School of Business, specializing in the impact of digital technologies and how they shape uh, our economies. He is not only a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council on Technology, he is also the author of a new book called The Sharing Economy, The End of Employment and the Rise of Crowd-Based Capitalism. Let's jump right into the technology backdrop of of the collaborative economy. Um, You've talked about the iPod as the first successful mass market product 
that was developed for consumers rather than businesses or governments. So what does the consumerization of digital technology mean for us? Well, I think that this was the consumerization of digital technology represented a radical shift in the focus of the industry producing the technology. Because if you think about the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, mm-hmm. technology products were built for business or government. and Meaning... Then- meaning- computers, phones, all all those various techs. Didn't consumers eventually take advantage of those? They did, but um, if you think about the primary focus of Mm R&D, in all of the companies except Apple, the business was the primary focus. The PC was built for business, and then a home computer version was developed. That's Um, interesting. The larger computers were built for business. Software was built for business. Mainframes, databases, etc. That's really very interesting. And so there was a shift in, like, you know, the late 90s, because computer technology got cheap enough and fast enough that you could conceive of mass market consumer products and the iPod was the first big one. But what this has done is that it shifted the focus of the technology industry away from businesses and to consumers. If you look at the big innovations of the last 10 years, social media, tablets, smartphones, they were built for consumers and then adapted for businesses. So so let's talk about, you mentioned Apple, let, let's talk about from iPod to iPhone, how much of the sharing economy is really directly dependent on the iPhone coming out and just upending the mobile phone market and then everything else that that followed from there? Is that the prime enabler of of all these technologies? Um, I think that the iPhone or smartphones becoming mass market is one of the enablers of a number of industries that have been changed by the sharing economy. You can't imagine Uber without a GPS-enabled smartphone. Right, knows where you are, knows where the car is. Yep, and there's a whole bunch of labor markets that have become possible because, you know, if I have a smartphone, then I become a potential source of labor to a market. They don't have to equip me with one of those devices that the UPS drivers have. Mm -hmm. But I think that there was a broader adoption of digital technology and a comfort level we got using this technology and interacting with other people through an interface. We digitized a lot of our social capital on networks like Facebook and LinkedIn. Explain that because you discuss that frequently in the book. What do you mean by we've digitized our identity and we've digitized our our trust. Well, if you think about pre-2005, we carried around a driver's license and this established through a government system that you were who you said you were. Mm-hmm. And you had a professional and a personal network that was known to you, but wasn't translatable into information that could make someone else who didn't know you trust you. So what Facebook and LinkedIn now represent is a lot of connections on Facebook and LinkedIn are meaningless, I agree. Right. But a lot of it represents real-world social capital, professional capital that you have built up over your lifetime that makes you more credible as a trading partner when someone says, well, should I rent my car to this person? Or um, should I trust this person enough to sleep in their spare bedroom? Or should I sort of like, you know, borrow money from them? Should I lend them money? This becomes part of a trust infrastructure along with technologies that allow you to hold up your driver's license in front of your webcam and have it verified. So you referenced earlier um, Craigslist and and I'll throw in Wikipedia, but one of the earliest of the tech companies was eBay. And the way eBay built in their 
trust verification is if you want to buy something from someone and you say, oh, this guy has a five-star rating and there's 10,000 transactions, they're fairly trustworthy. Is, is eBay the first entity to digitize that trust factor? eBay was definitely the pioneer in using these peer feedback systems or to create reputation. In some ways, they created the equivalent of a digital institution. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to have courts of law or contract. You could just rely on the feedback. The thing with eBay is that um, the stakes were low receiving a package from someone or you need to get paid by someone. The worst thing that happens is that you don't get the product, the product's broken, you don't get paid. These are very different stakes from trusting someone enough to let them into your apartment, trusting someone enough to get into their car and be driven to another city. Um, And so we needed the social capital and the identity to come in and to pair up with the peer-to-peer feedback systems, which all of the sharing economy platforms use, before we could see these high-stakes activities emerge and assume these sort of population-scale businesses that we're seeing today. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Arun Sundarajan. He is a professor at NYU Stern School of Business, an expert on digital technologies and the sharing economy. Let's talk a little bit about crowdfunding because there's some really interesting companies. Kickstarter, Kivalone, AngelList are the first three that come to mind. Let's start with simply, what is crowd-based capitalism? Well, crowd-based capitalism is my conception of a new model of how we organize the world's economic activity. So if you apply it to the funding space, what we're talking about is shifting the way we finance things out of the hands of an institution that gives you money. Could be a bank, could be a venture capital fund, private equity fund. Could be like a foundation that is giving grants to support Mm -hmm. the building of a theater. And shifting that towards a platform that still collects all the information that you would give a bank or a foundation or a VC, but then gets the financing through a distributed crowd of financiers, whether it's um, individuals buying equity in your company through AngelList, whether it's individuals contributing towards a loan that is then given to you through Funding Circle, or whether it's individuals who are you know, becoming philanthropists through a platform like Kickstarter. So AngelList, I think, is the easiest to understand. Here's a list of potential companies to, to interview. You could either invest in any one or into a whole group at, at once. That that follows the, the traditional angel investing model yep. only minus the, uh, the venture capitalists or the angels. It's yep. the crowdfunding. So I think most people get that. Yep. Let, let's talk about <clears throat> Kickstarter a bit because I think Kickstarter sort of crosses the lines. We, we've seen... And other similar groups to Kickstarter, there's a few of them. Yep. We've seen people who have said, I'm thinking about recording an album, I'm not, and people who are famous musicians, if enough people say they're interested, if we raise 50,000, I'll, I'll record this album. And they do. Or we want to put on a play, we need this much money, here are my prior plays, if you'd like to see me do another one. That makes perfect sense. And you're a contributor, you're, you don't get any of the upside of that, but you help bring something to light. But then there's something like Oculus Rift. And I, I thought that was sort of, I thought that was sort of a gray, gray situation and, and wrote about it. Look, it's clear the people who are contributing to Kickstarter know they're not equity investors, but you get a company that raises a couple of million dollars 
and then turns around and sells himself to Facebook for a couple of billion dollars, that sort of leaves a bad taste in people's mouth. It does, yeah. How, how do we define what Kickstarter is? And how do we make sure that we're not being taken advantage of if we like, oh, that's a cool idea, let's fund that, and, and then the founders cash out? Well, I think uh, the Oculus Rift investment on Kickstarter happened at a time when Kickstarter was a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. um, they were a philanthropic crowdfunding platform. They were a platform for demand generation, where you say, here's my product. If you sort of contribute to my campaign, you'll get one of the early instances of that product. And so they were sort of estimating demand there. Sure. And there were companies like Oculus that were getting off the ground. Um, I don't think we're going to see another Oculus on Kickstarter for two reasons. One is that for a company like that, there are far better platforms today where you actually do sell equity mm -hmm. and you get access to a much more sophisticated bunch of equity investors. Give, it, give us a few examples of those platforms. Well, AngelList is certainly one of them. There's another one called CircleUp. Um, I've been hearing a lot about one called WeFunder. Oh, sure. All of these are where you can become a tiny venture capitalist by like, you know, tapping into people who are um, listing their businesses. Um, but Kickstarter has also shifted direction and positioned themselves more squarely as a philanthropic site. Mm -hmm. And so they're less likely to attract investors into the next Oculus Rift. Hmm, that That's quite fascinating. I mean, if you ask me, I figure that the right thing for Oculus Rift to have done would have been to sort of give back some of the equity to all of its early funders, even though they didn't have to. I think that would have been a That much would nice have been the right thing to, to do. do. Yeah, much nicer end, end to that story. Yeah. Turns out that some folks are nicer than others. What are yeah. you going to do? And, and and again, they didn't do any, Oculus Rift didn't do anything wrong. No, they didn't. They never no. promised that they were going to actually give yeah. capital back to people. But anytime there's a $2 billion windfall on a $2 million investment, it's piggish not to at least do something for the people who got you off the ground with that. But that that's just my perspective. And I think we're going to see sort of a similar thing, a similar sentiment among the providers in the sharing economy when Uber and Lyft and Airbnb go public, mm -hmm. because the providers on these platforms aren't shareholders. Um, especially Meaning the drivers or the, the, the hosts, hosts or what have you. And Didn't Etsy do something with some of its early, I may be misremembering this, was either Etsy or another... Um, well, there's a new platform called Juno that um, is an Uber competitor mm -hmm. that has reserved 50% of its uh, equity for providers, for drivers. So whoever the, the driver will participate in the upside. Yep. It, it's funny because, you know, there's the old joke, the second mouse gets the cheese. Uber was the pioneer. They they did all the heavy lifting. I, I wonder if someone else could come in and, and jujitsu them with the technology. Hey, we're just like Uber, only you get equity. And when we go public, it's part of yours. Seems like a really interesting twist um, on, on the model. It really is. And uh, I think it's uh, compounded further by the fact that the relationship between providers and platform is not employment, but it's more hands-off. So there's nothing like a non-compete. I mean, you couldn't sort of build a Walmart next to Walmart right. and steal all their, um, you know, sort of well-qualified and highly screened workers, but you can do that with Uber. So so let's talk about what you just referenced, the, the gig economy. Yeah. So we have 53 million freelance workers here in the United States. Um, I think the numbers are one in, far, one in four do it for some supplemental income. 
Is this going to ever replace full-time work, or is this always going to be a side gig? Um, I think it's going to replace full-time work for a lot of the workforce over the next couple of decades. Um, I think what we're going to see is a shift in the role of the individual in the economy away from someone who provides talent and labor for a wage and towards someone who runs a tiny business through a platform in exchange for a share of the revenue that the business generates. And you you call this a micro business. Yep. Or I call these people micro entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that that's really the future of work because a lot of things that are done by human labor today are going to be done by machines in the future. Algorithms are eating everything. Absolutely. And um, we're also seeing the emergence at scale of these crowd-based capitalism platforms, both on the finance side and on the sort of the real-world services side. I expect we'll see platforms like this in the energy sector once battery technology gets good enough to store the solar power that you generate. Mm -hmm. We'll see it emerge on the low end or the easy end of healthcare once trust gets high enough that you can sort of go on to the platform and get a registered nurse to come and stitch up the finger that you cut cooking. And so at that point, and you know, I'm already seeing platforms like this for accounting, for law, for architecture, for um, sales, for high-end computer programming, where you can start to run your own tiny business as an individual rather than working for someone else. So it's definitely the work model of the future. And we've really got to rethink our education system in a way that prepares our kids for this world of work where they're not going to be joining a well-structured job that gives them a career path, but they're going to have to make it up on their own. It's ongoing skills and continuing to accumulate and improve them in order to do the those micro entrepreneurial tasks that that Absolutely. sounds fascinating yeah. so all of this raises a fascinating question we we know gdp is not a terrific measure of what the economy is totally producing and then what's probably my least favorite data point in terms of its accuracy is the productivity numbers which i think completely fail to capture all of the impact of technology and and how it the the fact that we have tens of millions of yep. people running micro businesses is not reflected in those data so two questions first are we no longer accurately measuring the economy based on the changes in digital technology and second how do we catch up? How can we accurately capture those metrics? Well, on the first point, I do think that there is a growing gap between what the government statistics say and what the state of the economy really is in terms of the size of the economy, in terms of the amount of employment, and in terms of like the value creation from technological innovation. Um, you know, the BLS has a tough job because um, they've got to capture these changes. In real time. In real time, but they also need to maintain historical historical consistency because we want to see trends. So they can't just sort of throw out their survey and pull in a new one. I do know that they worked over the summer in adding new questions to the current employment survey Mm -hmm. to try and capture some of these effects, but I don't know if they will be enough. They Um, make these changes very slowly over long periods of time. time. It's a real gradual shift and it's almost imperceptible. And by the time they make the change... It's already having a substantial deviation from from what they should be measured. Absolutely. And I think that the fundamental shift that we're going to see is away from measuring employment by counting jobs and towards measuring um, activity by human beings in terms of the total amount of work 
We've been speaking with Professor Arun Sundarajan of NYU Stern. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for our podcast extras, where we keep the digital tape rolling and continue discussing all things economic, finance, and investing. You can check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce Fenner and Smith Incorporated. Welcome to the podcast. Um, Aaron, thank you so much for doing this. This is really interesting. I, I enjoyed the book. I found it to be an intriguing way to sort of reorganize, in my mind, what's going on in the broader economy. And, and there's some really fascinating things in it. Um, let's talk about a few things that we missed during the broadcast portion. There was something you had written early in the book that I thought was interesting about three technological invariants. I thought that was really intriguing. Digitalization, exponential growth, and modularity. I I think most listeners know what each of those three things are. Why is that unique to technology and why is it unvarying? Well, it's um, trying to come up with three things that don't change about digital technology mm-hmm. was in response to the fact that so many things do seem to change mm-hmm. about digital technology. And so how do you frame what the future is going to look like? And so um, to me, these the combination of these three things, like you know, the digitization of information, um, exponential growth and bandwidth and computing power and storage, mm-hmm. And the idea that you can call on the capabilities of a digital machine through software um, and you don't have to sort of rebuild the capabilities into a new machine, you can just call on it. All of these are unique to digital technologies. There's what they sort of set them apart from, say, the steam engine or the other general purpose technologies in the past. And I think that these are the three things that are causing... um, the pace at which um, digital technology is changing the world. The the, ex- the second derivative, the the rate of change is accelerating and accelerating in a in a ever faster mode. Yeah, in 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 some ways, the consumerization of digital, the fact that we've got sort of handheld computers that we can use and carry around with mobile, us, mobile, portable. Yeah, and I mean, and, and then and on then, top of that. The app economy has allowed for these really specialty, narrow purpose driven products and that continues to explode. Yeah, because the digitization and the exponential growth are what put the smartphone in your hand at an affordable price. And it's what makes one be able to predict 20 years ago that this is gonna happen. Mm -hmm. And then the modularity means that you don't have to build all the capabilities into the phone when you buy it. You can start to sort of download them and extend what your phone does for you in a modular way over time. And Well, and, and that basically is what's going to be the ongoing 
development of information technology, those three yep. factors. I mean, and, and this is going to explode even further as 3D printing comes of age. So you referenced that. It, it's the old um, format was reductive. You, you know, I, I, I forgot whose quote I'm stealing. Um, maybe it was Michelangelo. I, I start with a block of marble and take everything away that's not the final sculpture, yep. which is a little glib. But 3D printing is the opposite. It's additive. You're adding layer on top of layer, and it's the design that matters, not not necessarily the physical skill in, yep. in producing it. And so what happens because of additive manufacturing is that you might start to see what happened to the newspaper industry happen to other industries where you know the newspaper industry also relied on the movement of physical goods. Mm-hmm. The newspapers, the distribution networks, music was the same thing, the retailing channels. All of that went away when the products became digitized. Now, if you're selling jewelry in 10 years, um, you may not need a physical distribution network. You may just have to come up with the best designs because everybody is printing the jewelry that they want and adapting it on their home 3D printer. So a whole host of new products start to become purely digital in terms of selling them. And the consumer by themselves sort of renders the design into physical form in the same way that we're rendering the news into something that we can read or rendering the music. So so uh, 3D printing has, there have been some nice 3D printers, but it's not the sort of thing. Just about every house in the United States has a refrigerator, has a television, yeah. has a washing machine, but not every house has a digital printer, a 3D digital printer. How far off in the future is that? And what does that mean for consumption of future goods and physical retail stores? Well, I think that it's about 10 years into the future on two fronts. Um, You will probably have a sort of a limited functionality 3D printer in your own home. Mm -hmm. But there will be a network of print shops in your neighborhood that will start to play some of the role that the local retailer plays, Mm -hmm. where, you know, you may not. You, for the more complicated items that need to be printed, you may not want to do it at home, but you just sort of walk down the street and you know send your design to the 3D printing shop and then pick up the object and bring it back. Um, this, you know, this is one of many forces that is going to change physical retailing over the coming decade. Um, I, Can I, I assume you're not a big investor in large uh, retail shopping malls? No, I'm not a big investor in shopping <laughs> malls. I'm not an investor in power companies either. Why is that? That's interesting. Well, I'm starting to see um, us getting close to a point where um, there will be good enough battery technology Mm -hmm. for us to start to think of the individual as the producer of power for the neighborhood. I mean, there are some people who have a lot of roof space and Mm -hmm. they don't need as much power. There are other people who need more power. They don't have enough roof space. And so... You know, solar power technology right now is a, I install it for myself. Now, once we have good battery technology that can store the power um, and ways in which we can retransmit it to people in our neighborhoods, either a grid, a smart grid that routes it and knows who's supplying and who's consuming it. Yep, that's one way. Another way is to actually transport the batteries themselves. Physical batteries. The physical ah, batteries. That's sort of, and That happens when it's local. Then, then you start to sort of uh, realize that the fundamental underlying economics of producing solar power are dramatically superior to the coal and gas technologies because they're not mechanical, so you don't lose so much of the power as you're generating it. But they're still 
solar is still relatively inefficient. The photovoltaic cells capture a tiny percentage of the solar energy that hits it. We lose some in transmission. We lose some in storage. How far away is that technology from, how many years away is technology from what you're describing, a higher efficiency photovoltaic cell and a, a much lower loss and much longer lasting battery for, for the storage of that energy? Well, both those technologies are progressing rapidly. The photovoltaic uh, technology perhaps sort of more rapidly. Um, but I think what the real key missing piece of the infrastructure here is, is the storage technology where mm -hmm. you don't sort of lose it, use it or lose it. Um, and once that happens, the critical infrastructure won't be the distribution infrastructure or the production infrastructure. It'll be the platform that sort of ties together all these generators of power, individual generators of power, and creates a market where this becomes comparable to getting your power from the power plant. Hmm. And so I think we're gonna see the emergence of this more rapidly in countries where the traditional power infrastructure isn't quite as reliable as it is in the United States. And that's the, those are the fringes where you'll see these energy platforms come of age. More in emerging markets than developed nations. Initially, to begin with. yeah. But then once these grow up and mature there, then they will start to take on, like, you know, sort of the traditional energy industry. You know, it's funny when you look at the emerging markets, they jumped over plain old telephone lines. They went right to mobile. Yep. Why do we want to wire an entire country for phone when yep. plain old telephone service, when mobile is here and it's relatively cheap and uh, we're going to more or less see the same thing in in energy is that is that the expectation absolutely i think that the um you know sort of the future for a lot of um emerging markets that don't have reliable power supply is going to be a more advanced future than the present for us today and again during the broadcast portion we were talking about uber and we were talking about lyft we didn't talk about the car rent. So those are driving services where someone will drive you. Yeah. But you tell told the story of, you know, you live in New York, you don't have a car, and then here are all these cars that spend 23 hours a day sitting there doing nothing. Yep. You just wanted to borrow a car, do something for a half hour, put it back, and leave a, leave a 20 on the dashboard. There are a bunch of these services from Zipcar to get around to drivey. Um, how what is their future like and and are there what does this mean for the future of ownership to someone like me who grew up a car meant freedom? Kids, the current generation, they don't perceive it that way. They could always get a car from somewhere. Yeah, I mean, you know, you look at the number of 16 to 19-year-olds who have driver's licenses in the United States. I think back in the 80s, it was over 85%. Mm -hmm. uh, today, it's under 50%. That's amazing. So so some of them are just going to stick with Uber. Yeah. And some of them, the half that has a uh, a license... They don't need to buy a car. They could just uh, rent one on demand from one of these services. Absolutely, because, um, you know, that notion that your car defines who you are, mm -hmm. all of this work that the auto industry put into sort of making it a lifestyle product. Sure. 
um, that's starting to wither away for two reasons. One is that, you know, you call an Uber on demand or a Lyft on demand when you need it. You don't really care what the brand of the car is. You don't send it away saying, I wanted a Cadillac and you sent right. me a Chevy. Um, but it's also that that statement of identity among the youth is more through the mobile phone that they own, their Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook profile. Mm-hmm. And so the role of the automobile in defining who you are to your peers has become a lot less. So these, you know, I think that there are great prospects for platforms like Get Around and Turo in the United States, Drivey, which is taking over different countries in Europe. There's one called PP Douche, which is, um, you know, sort of the largest peer-to-peer car rental platform in China. Um, you know, in 20 years, we would have shifted automobile, the automobile industry to a place where for a lot of people, it's an on-demand service where the car without the steering wheel is coming to pick you up and take you where you want to go. So at a certain point, it's not just drivers on demand, it's autonomous drivers on demand. Yep. I mean, you know, I know that Uber projects that that future is going to come in five years. I think that that's aggressive. 10 years, 20 years, yeah, more that, somewhere in that range? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think the path through which we'll see it emerge initially is through the on-demand platforms because they can vouch for the autonomous vehicles. They can say, listen, we'll keep the speeds under 20. We'll make sure they don't drive in front of schools. And so they will sort of introduce them before, say, Tesla has a a car without a steering wheel. I'm I'm thinking long-haul truckers are probably the first place we we see that really adapted. Because it's mostly highway and it's really easy to keep that defined. Local tri- driving is a little more challenging. I Absolutely, would I think Uber bought a uh, sort of a long haul driverless trucking company. It's kind of it's kind of right? yeah. fascinating. Um, and then there was before we get to my favorite questions, uh, there was a a company mem- mentioned in in the book, Feastly. Yep. What is Feastly? Well, Feastly is one of a number of platforms that allow you to convert your dining room into a restaurant occasionally. So if you like to prepare food and you're good at it, um, you prepare a meal, you list it on Feastly, and you know they, you say, well, here's the menu, and it's $45 a seat. And uh, people will either book the entire table, or if you're in a new city and you want to hang out and sort of eat at someone's home with a bunch of locals, that's a way to do it. How, how widespread has that been uh, in terms of being adopted? So in other words, We've already done taxis, we've already done hotels, now we're looking at restaurants. Yep, I think that restaurants are being challenged by, you know, these supper clubs on demand like Feastly, and there's Mm -hmm. another one called Eat With. Um, Eat With. Yep. And it's essentially just a supper club on demand. Yep. People who enjoy cooking, people who enjoy entertaining and serving. Uh, it's a way for them to meet people and other people to get together. Yep, there's also a platform called Josephine, which is not, um, I feed you in my home, but I prepare it in my kitchen and send it to you. So this is sort of the next generation of restaurants and Seamless. Mm-hmm. Um, like All of these platforms are starting to face regulatory pushback from you know the departments of health. Sure. I mean, you've been in a number of New York City kitchens. I mean, none of our kitchens is going to sort of pass the Department of Health inspection, right? So Probably not. And so, we although have, although it used to be that half the restaurants in New York before the ABCD yep. grades, a lot of those restaurants didn't have the greatest kitchens. And as much as the restaurant industry pushed back on those grades, 
you, it's the healthiest it's ever been to go out to eat, at Absolutely. least in terms of, of food poisoning and, and things along those lines. Yeah, it's and I uh, think Yelp has played a role as well in being able to sort of direct the government attention to the restaurants that need it. You know, most city governments actually have automated systems that mine Yelp and sort of look for things like food poisoning. Really? And, um, I had no idea. I That's felt fascinating. Sick and, um, I feel sick when those that word will kick out something. Yeah, and or, um, you know, just there are a bunch of keywords that signal that something needs to be done and then they send an inspector there. That, that's fascinating, the interplay of, of the ratings and social with government yeah. regulation. And I think that's the future of regulation for this sort of more fluid, sort of personal, professional, blurring, you know, restaurant and food delivery industry where you can't have government inspectors sort of doing all the work if you've got half a million people who are right. occasionally delivering food. You need some sort of peer feedback system, maybe peer monitoring, looking at the data on the platform and using the government resources more judiciously. Mess up enough time, get a bad enough rating, and the government will will shut you down, prevent you from doing this in the yeah. future. And meanwhile, the platform will send an expert to you to sort of help you sort of get up to speed and um, like, you know, sort of get on board before the need for like government intervention comes along. I know I only have you for another 10 or so minutes, so let me jump into some of my um, favorite questions. Uh, you've been at <clears throat> NYU for a while. Before that, uh, you were at a couple of other schools. <clears throat> Who were some of your early mentors? Who really influenced your the development of your career and your thinking? Well, um, I'd have to say that... Um, as a researcher, the uh, person who perhaps was the most influential to me is an economist called Roy Radner. Mm -hmm. um, he's like a world-class economist. I worked a lot with him right after joining NYU. And he really shaped my thinking on two fronts. One is, what does it mean to ask and answer questions that really matter? To not think of research as sort of an end to itself, but a means to understanding the world better. Mm -hmm. And I think he's also got an approach to treating other human beings as equals that is really remarkable and um, was very influential in sort of how I interact with the world. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, what about other technologists, venture capitalists, other folks like that? Who's influenced your thought process when looking at some of these new models, new companies, new ideas in the in the sharing economy? Well, um, if I look at the sort of the most recent crop of um, like you know technology leaders, um, I've been very impressed by the way Airbnb is run, mm -hmm. and I really think that there's a lot of inspiring thought that has come out of Brian Chesky, Joe Jebbia and um, Nate, uh, the three co-founders. Mm -hmm. um, in particular, sort of Brian's idea that, um, you know, everything is a design problem. That, um, you know, you've got to design the world that you want because otherwise uh, someone else is going to design it for you mm -hmm. and you may not like what you get and so sort of take control and design your own reality. I I've read things he's written about that and they're quite fascinating. Yeah, and I think that that's core actually to why Airbnb is successful because the idea that you can build a platform that will connect individuals with spare space wasn't a new one. It was really the design of the experience for both the person who's staying and the person who is hosting. And 
designing it carefully as an experience that doesn't just work for someone renting out a vacation property, but works for someone renting out their spare bedroom, renting out their entire apartment. I mean, this is this is really a design accomplishment and not a technology accomplishment. Very interesting. Let, let's talk a little bit about books. What are some of your favorite books, be they <clears throat> fiction or nonfiction and related to technology or or finance or not? So apart from Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace, another book that I've really been influenced by is a book called Collapse by Jared Diamond. Sure. I think that it sort of lays out this pattern of why civilizations rise and fall in a way that was incredibly compelling through sort of research that was done over thousands of years over a thousand year period. Um, I've personally been influenced by this wonderful book called Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Mm-hmm. I think anybody who's a parent should read this book because it sort of defines what to expect um, like, you know, later in the process of parenting. And it's just, you know, it's a slim volume, um, really sort of changes the way that you think about the world. Um, Jared Diamond had written a book, what is it? Um Guns, Germs, and Steel, Steel is yeah. that? I remember reading that for a while ago and thinking it was fascinating. I haven't read Collapse yet. Yeah, Collapse and The Third Chimpanzee are both like really interesting. Really? All right, we'll, books, put, yeah. we'll put that down on our list, Third Chimpanzee. Hmm. Um, so since you started looking at technology and, and the sharing economy, what's been the single biggest change? What, is, what has altered this? Well, um, you know, I started programming when I was a teenager, Mm-hmm. And so I used computers for many years before the internet. Mm-hmm. And so while this is a cliched answer, it's pretty clear that the commercialization of the internet has been the single biggest technological shift that I've seen, like, you know, in my studying digital technology. I think the consumerization of digital that we saw in the late 90s is perhaps sort of like, you know, the most significant manifestation of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm expecting great things from the blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're at. The I think a lot of people are, and so far, uh, it, it's been unfulfilled promise. Is, is that a fair statement? Um, I think that it's really early days. Mm-hmm. Um, I put sort of where we are with the blockchain today as uh, where we were with the internet um, in, like you know, 1991. Mm-hmm. This was like a couple of years before the emergence of Netscape or any right. of the browsers before once the worldwide web. Once we got to a graphical interface, suddenly everything yep. took off. And so, so there are going to be layers built on top of the blockchain that will suddenly bring it to life. And mm-hmm. then over the next decade, it'll start to change a lot of businesses. I don't think it's going to disintermediate as much of a lot of, as a lot of other people think it is. But I think it's going to be a tremendous source of efficiency. So outside of your work, what do you do to relax and, and kick back? Oh, um, you know, a lot of different things. Um, I, uh, I like to ski. Mm-hmm. Um, I like beaches. I like quiet beaches. I mm-hmm. try to travel to <clears throat> I try to travel to beaches that I don't know about as much as I can. Um, I like to read. Um, I like parks. Um, you know, I um, you know, I do strength training in the gym when I can. I you sort do. of yeah, I focus on um movements that replicate what you do in everyday life mm-hmm. as opposed to machines. And so I would do a deadlift or a squat over sort of machines that isolate particular muscles. That's interesting. That by the way, that is a question that has come to a come to us from a reader yeah. who said you ask all these same questions uh, of your guests at the end of the interview. Here's something that I'd really like to know, and and you're the second person we've 
we've worked that in with. So so now we're down to my two favorite questions. And you work with students and many of whom are millennials. What sort of advice would you give to a, a recent college graduate or a millennial who wanted to go into either technology or venture capital as a field? Well, the one consistent piece of advice I give recent college graduates or millennials is to expect that the world of work that they're going to be facing in 20 years is very different from the world of work today. Um, STEM capabilities are going to matter less. Um, Science, technology, technology, engineering, engineering, and math. Yeah, and uh, design thinking, creativity, entrepreneurship, um, interpersonal interaction. These are the skills that are going to matter more. Um, And so think of your career as not working for someone else, but as sort of defining your own path Mm -hmm. and accumulate the skills for that. Um, For the ones who want to go into venture capital, I tell them that the only way to learn how to be a venture capitalist is to do it. There are lots of platforms that allow you to do it today. And so, you know, if you want to become an investment banker, you try and join one of the big banks as an associate. That isn't really the path in venture capital. And so, you know, if you really want to either by working for early stage companies or by investing yourself, build up a portfolio if you want to be a venture capitalist. Hmm, Very interesting. And our final question what is it that you know about technology and the rise of, of the new digital sharing environment today that you wish you knew 10 or 15 years ago? Well, um, one of the things I wish I had seen is um, just how dramatic the consumerization of digital was going to be. Um, you know, back in 2000, sort of looking on the horizon, seeing the iPod, um, it wasn't as clear to me that we were going to see as rapid a pace of consumer technology adoption and all of the changes that came with it. Um, because had I seen that coming, I'd have bought a ton of Apple stock at the time <laughs> because, you know, they were really the only game in town at that right. point. I mean, you know, they had a 10-year head start over everybody else in terms of thinking about the consumer as, you know, sort of the audience for technology products. Um that's quite interesting. Yeah. We've been speaking with Professor Arun Sundarajan of NYU's Stern School of Business. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes, and you could see the other 109 or so such conversations we've had over the past two years. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not thank Taylor Riggs, my booker, Charlie Vollmer, our recording engineer, and Michael Batnick, our head of research, for helping to put together these interviews and podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Be sure and write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon. Named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by The Banker. That's the power of global connections. Bank of America, North America. Member FDIC. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.